I think a lot of that comes with a, a mind change to developers, right? It, it, for a while, it had just been just DevOps. And, you know, as of recently, and part of a lot of the movement you've done and the work you've been doing in community, as you mentioned, you know, of your journey has been around changing minds. And I heard you mention on a podcast recently, you said this term shift left. And I think about changing the minds. How do you get developers to embrace security? That's the thing, right? So you can build a great tool and they can do all these amazing things. But if developers don't consider it, well, then how do you help developers shift left? Yeah, exactly. And I think I actually kind of like to say that shift left is really important. It's this notion of like moving testing and like security activities earlier in the cycle. But I like to think that like the big change is not shift left, but it's top to bottom. It's, uh, it's this notion of shifting security from being central and kind of centrally mandated and controlled to being a bottom-up movement. We expect developers, application teams, DevOps teams, to make decisions and to be autonomous, right? So that they can very quickly, you know, learn what they need to do, build a solution, ship that to market, learn from it, iterate again and again, right? The, the, the tighter the loop, the faster, you know, the better the business uh, results are. Yet, and we expect them to build secure software, and yet we don't trust them to make security decisions. So there's a dissonance here. There's a problem. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Linode makes cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your ideas to the next level. We trust Linode because they keep it fast and they keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk. One-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stokoviak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of Changelog.com. Guy Pajarni is the founder of Sneak, a security platform that empowers software-driven businesses to develop fast and secure. And prior to Sneak, Guy founded Blaze, which was acquired by Akamai, and Guy became CTO there in the acquisition. And we talked about that kind of thing being acquired and whether or not the acquisition of Blaze played a key role in making Sneak possible. And we also talked about this topic of acquisition, the sale, the merge, what Guy learned, and why Guy might not be planning for Sneak to be acquired anytime soon. But we start with Sneak's most recent raise of $150 million. You know, what turned me on to reach out to you was your recent raise. And often businesses use raises as a mechanism for marketing, but also in a way to sort of, I would say, a position of gratitude to some degree. You know, what do you think about that? When you, it seems like every time you raise, which has, I've only seen a couple of them, but anytime you have that kind of news or that kind of thing to share, you often as a founder get a chance to sort of look back at what you've done. What is that like for you? Yeah, I think a part of it is definitely kind of an acknowledgement of success, you know, to an extent in startups, you kind of move from raise to raise, you know, for a while as you build it up. And there's definitely, you know, kind of that moment of just kind of taking stock and sort of say, okay, I've, I have this, you know, smart external entity here who is willing to literally sort of put money betting on, on my future growth. And that's quite compelling. I, I actually, like, I like that there's a similar type signal that I've always really liked, which is when customers expand with you. I think that's another one where you're just like, hey, did I just tell a good story and kind of sell you, you know, something that that sounded compelling? Yeah. 
But then when they get to the point where not only do they want to renew, continue using your service, but they actually want to do more business with you. So I think a raise is a little bit like that. I think the other maybe to me more significant aspect of a raise is that every time you raise money, you're kind of doubling down on going long. Because you get to a moment, at a high level, you can claim that fundraising and, and exiting or sort of selling the company are are kind of a similar transaction, right? They're yeah. very different f- for the founder, but they're both, you know, you're selling shares, just whether you're selling a portion of them or the entirety. And so every time you raise money, you're committing to doing all you can to return a multiple on that money, you know, to the investors. So you're kind of going long and every one of these journeys is, is exciting. But as you know, in startups, mm-hmm. every piece of the journey is its own adventure. Uh, and it's oftentimes very unlike, you know, the piece of the journey that, that preceded it. So to me, definitely the last two raises, which were kind of big, you know, big in like number of dollars raised, big in valuation, they're more about that, you know, you, you sort of say from the get-go or I did and I, I believed it. But I had to like con- commit oh, to it again yeah. concretely. What's that like? That this is this is not about you know a short turnaround, right? right? It's about a real kind of long-term sustainable company. Did you have to do any sort of soul searching to during those commitments? Like, do I really believe in Sneak? Do I really believe in what we're doing? Do I really believe? Because it seems, I mean, it seems like everything you've done in your career has led you to do what you're doing now, which is sort of the way it is for most careers, but you know, more so for yours, like you've been security minded for ever, basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you're in the perfect place. I never really had any lack of conviction about sneak and its journey being the right thing for sort of long-term uh, approaches, right? Sneak is, is about dev first security, right? And it's built on a, on a core thesis. You know, we can dig into that more over the show, but it's built on that core thesis that developers have to embrace security now more than ever as kind of DevOps happens and, you know, teams need to be more autonomous. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a core, like dev first security has to happen. And that the way to get developers to embrace security is to build a developer tooling company, not a security company, you know, in terms of like what it looks, you know, what it talks, you know, what it kind of walks like, because you have to build tools that developers would actually want to embrace. And I think those two premises have only, like my conviction in them, have only strengthened. So I don't think I had any soul searching on that. I think what does always happen when you sort of go from round to round is that you have to commit around, you know, the independence. So the journey, I think I was committed to, and I don't think I've ever veered away from it, the commitment to doing that journey with you in the leader seat, right, versus under the umbrella of a larger company, I think that's the true thing that you have to just kind of recommit to, you know, yeah. every time you do uh you do a fundraise. Because we, you know, we were in a in a good place where the company was growing very quickly. We've turned down multiple acquisition offers. And I think when that happens, it's again, it's sort of this commitment that not only do you think and continue to believe that this is the trajectory the market is going down, but also that on a personal level, you're still there. You have the energy, the drive, the desire right. to continue the very demanding, very fulfilling, but very demanding startup journey and do the next stage of growth. Yeah, because you don't have to just be good at what you do. You have to be good at being the leader, right? I was going to say what you do again to double enunciate that, but yeah. you know, it's you have to be good at leading. And sometimes you're really good at a particular skill set. And maybe you've been a good leader and you have good leadership qualities, but you not, may not be the best leader to lead it to the next. Is that what you're saying? When each time you do that round change, that, that are you the person that should be at the top still yet? 
Well, I think there's two things that I'm saying. One is, it's just a conviction on, like, regardless of your role or kind of what role you play, it's just that it's almost an exercise in risk management, right? Like, you know, do you want to, like, uh, bet, you know, quite literally financially, you know, the uh, that these uh, shares that you have here in the company will continue to grow, right? Yeah. You know, versus, you know, take what you've got off the table. And also, like, alongside that, you know, like, be willing to sort of put in the sweat and tears, right, that is involved in that. And it's not to say that you don't work hard yeah. post-acquisitions, but but it's different, you know, it's like a little bit more existential, right, when it's, uh, when it's your own. So that's sort of one aspect of it. And yeah, definitely there's that other aspect, which is you don't know what would be needed of you. So I personally have brought on a new CEO onto the company, Peter, who... You know, it's probably a story in its own right that we can cover, but you know, it was my initiative and it was an acknowledgement of both what I can do best, what the company needed and what I want to do that drove me to do this. So there's that bit of specifically the role, you know, in my case, kind of, you know, replacing myself as CEO, but also just the company. Like uh, we're now a company of about 300 people and we've grown very quickly and you have to run the company differently, you know, when you're 300 people versus when you are you know, 80 people, which we were just like a year and a half ago, <laughs> or 20 people yeah. that we were a year prior to that. So you you have to want it. And you know, some people totally legitimately don't want that, right? They just, they, they don't want to lead a company that is more than 50 people, right? When they can't name everybody. And I think that's entirely legitimate, but that's the decision that you have to, to decide. It's like, do I want to sort of stop here? You know, I got it very far. I'll be an employee, you know, I'll see how long it kind of takes me, you know, within sort of the acquiring company and then kind of figure it out. Or do you want to continue down this journey, right, and, and build something big? So I had the luxury of of this not being my first kind of rodeo, right? I spent about a decade in AppSec in, uh, through three acquisitions of Sanctum that got acquired by Watchfire, that got acquired by IBM. And then I founded a web performance company and got acquired by Akamai, and I was CTO there for a bunch of years. So I think that the first stretch kind of taught me a little bit about acquisitions and what does it mean to be acquired and sort of be in those companies. That sort of second journey, you know, put me in a pretty good financial state and allowed me to also learn how to be an exec in a, in a big, you know, sort of the chief technology officer of a $700 million a year business, right? Sort of, you know, C-scale. And so by the time I arrived at Sneak, I was, you know, like it's never been about the money, but it was even more so about like, it wasn't just about proving that I can once it was around building something that matters, something that is big, that kind of makes a dent in the universe. And so I think my conviction was there all the time. And yet it still needed to be reaffirmed <laughs> every time that there's a, a big financial transaction that takes place. You definitely have to recheck yourself, retrospective, recheck yourself, whatever that might be. Everybody's version of that's different because life changes, you know, it's not just about businesses, but your family too. In a lot of cases, like yep. you're not just leading a company, you're leading an opportunity for your family. And so you have to manage risk level for yourself personally, how you feel about things going day to day to do what you do. Yep. Then how does that impact your family? And then how does that impact overall, you know, your future in that business and what it might do? It's a, yep. it's an interesting perspective. And you mentioned your acquisition processes over the years. I do want to talk about Peter McKay at some point. So let's earmark that. But I want to go back to some of the learnings you had from Blaze to Akamai. You'd mentioned that was the one that put you in a better financial situation. I'm assuming that may have even helped you do Sneak originally. I'm, I can only assume, but uh, made it a little easier to do it that way, right? Yeah. But what did you learn from that process? It sounded like, you know, you've thwarted off a couple acquisition opportunities over the last couple of years, however long. But having gone through an acquisition process and being acquired, what did you learn that you didn't like about that process? What was it about 
Or what did you like? You know, what did you learn from that that made you feel the way you feel today about Sneak and its potential acquisitions or lack thereof, if there's none for you? So I think Blaze was an amazing ride. I mean, if I, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll actually go a little bit further back. Please do, yeah. It's a learning exercise. So I was in this Israeli company called Sanctum. It lived over the bubble. It was one of the pioneers in the application security space, building the first web up firewall app shield and the first web up security scanner app scan. And Sanctum was, you know, it, it raised a lot of money, you know, shortly before the bubble burst and that allowed it to kind of get out the other side. And it had great technology, but it didn't have the best sort of a, a go-to-market execution, right? And also there was a need to rewrite, like as technology of the web evolves and application security was growing, it was a constant chase to, uh, you know, like JavaScript wasn't on pages, you know, when that started. And so uh, by the time Watchfire came along to acquire it, Watchfire was a company that audited websites for other types of problems, not security problems, found spelling mistakes, found broken links on websites in, in big scale. And, you know, like some of those, that team might disagree with me, but I think like the tech was not as deep as Sanctum's, but the go-to-market was excellent. And the tech was scalable, like it was around kind of breadth. And so Watchfire acquired Sanctum a little bit before Sanctum ran out of money and, you know, sort of a slightly more elaborate private-to-private transaction. Uh, and I moved from Israel to Canada in the process. And for me, the next kind of two, three years were very kind of a seminal in my learnings. I learned first, you know, I, I moved, I relocated like a big life experience, kind of seeing something that is different, which I loved and I think I learned a lot from. Second is I got much closer. Uh, Israel is a great technology hub, but oftentimes when you're there, you're a little bit shielded from the go-to-market. But by moving there, I got much closer to, I got on more sales call, I got more customer conversations. And I actually, I did a stint as a technical, as an SE, as a tech sales uh, person. And then I took a product role, went out of development into product. And so I learned a lot about the outside and I learned to appreciate what a good go-to-market looks like. You know, so AppScan's sales first quarter after the acquisition were the best ever for AppScan, you know, after like, this is the first quarter into Watchfire after the acquisition of Sanctum. And it was just because the sales leader there just kind of figured out, you know, and, and immediately saw, you know, the way it should be sold over the phone with sort of a certain process mm. very, very quickly. So to me, I think that's my like first takeaway, which is, you know, appreciate go to market, you know, learn kind of the interaction, appreciate sales as I was a part of the org for, for about six months and then kind of learn that product. And then when IBM acquired Watchfire, I guess I'm going to say that there's a bunch of things I learned what I don't like about an acquisition, which is uh, like the acquisition itself was good and it was great. We kind of, we moved into a, a good surroundings and IBM is very methodical with their sort of blue washing process on, on how do they gradually merge companies into it. But then it taught me uh, a lot of things that I didn't like to do post-acquisition. Uh, so I'd say my two primary learnings were, you know, one is we got acquired into Rational. So this is a security company, got acquired into Rational as, as a part. It's the same journey that I'm on, right? Like it's the sort of this developer journey to build security into development tools. And one of the key challenges, which we did some right and some wrong, uh, were really around how do we merge this like security sale within the dev environment. So I feel like I learned a lot there about uh, the challenges in those two areas, which I think helped me with Sneak later on. Yeah. The other thing I learned is the importance of uh, of some technical things like banding. When you get acquired by a company that is a large company, it's really, really important to uh, negotiate the bands, the sort of the tiers that the different team members will be on, because it's really, really hard to change them inside. There's a lot more fluidity to it in the moment of acquisition uh, around where do people rank, and it's hard to move up the ranks later on in the 10 bands or whatever it is that IBM or large companies have. 
and I guess kind of an appreciation, and again, some was done right and some was done wrong, of how important it is to shield an acquisition, you know, to sort of to have that acquisition be protected from the beast, you know, from the acquiring company at the beginning. But then also similarly, it's really important to not make the steps be too big. Like you have to gradually, but you have to merge it in. It can't remain a satellite. So I ramble a bit, but like yeah. that was like a very educational exercise for me. I wasn't a founder in that journey, but I had enough of a role to sort of a role in the diligence of both of those kind of acquisitions and even acquire a company inside of uh, IBM. Well, the key thing I hear there that you're saying, though, is, is that despite not being a founder in that scenario, you were able to leverage that learning to when the day came for you to be, to have that skill set. And I think that's an interesting path and something for those who are not quite there yet listening to this can keep in mind is like, you know, what you're learning today you know, may not be, you may not be a founder, CEO, or a leadership role, but that doesn't mean you're not learning leadership qualities and to not discount what you're doing today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to an extent, it's like, you know, you, you get what you put into it. Yeah. I don't really, I kind of joke that I don't have a, a first gear and a fifth gear, right? I sort of, I don't really know how to sort of go mid speed. So I, uh, I dive deep in, but I definitely use those opportunities with the relocations, with the acquisitions to learn, to try new things. Uh, I like, there's a, I think, a, I think it's a Mark Andreessen statement that says, uh, replace career planning with strategic opportunity taking, mm-hmm. which I felt is a, I feel is a good guidance, you know, to just find those opportunities, learn from them. And it means that post-acquisition, you don't need to like find your corner and kind of get comfortable, but rather, you know, look at the opportunities that you now have for growth and for learning and see what you can make out of them. You'd mentioned the banding. I'm not sure how deep you want to go on that point there, but I'm interested in, in I suppose, the negotiation process because the best time to negotiate or set terms is during the deal making, right? And that would make sense. When you talk about banding, can you go into that a bit more in terms of like how that set the teams up for success? I can even kind of talk about this a little bit in the context of the ACMI acquisition of Blaze. But uh, at the high level, what happens is like big companies, every company, like we do this now at Snake as well, uh, increasing once you get to a certain size, you start tiering the employees in terms of seniority. You want to do this because the market operates this way and that allows you to get uh, salary benchmarks, you know, across different companies of a certain size. So, you know, if you're a smaller company, you might have, you know, five tiers and right, you might sort of have a whatever, sort of like a junior person and, uh, you know, you kind of progress up to sort of, you know, your sort of top tier sort of individual contributor. You might have, you know, like individual contributor and manager tiers. They would somewhat overlap, but you tier somehow. Now, because different people, different roles, different salaries, like very, very different, each of these tiers does have typically a fairly broad uh, salary range and other sort of compensation bits, but there are other pieces that are attached to it. And moving from tier to tier is, is a bigger deal than, you know, getting your salary adjusted within a tier. And so larger companies, there's a magic number of 10 if you look at IBM, and I think like Google is like that. I think generally there's like these 10 tiers, which in tech roles are oftentimes you at the minimum is like a four, right? And it might be that one and two are like, you know, the temp kind of a receptionist or the, you know, sort of, you know, janitorial roles, you know, things that are a little bit outside the technology operation of the company. But then within those 10 tiers, and then the, and then you have executives, and executives is a little bit of a different tier. So when a big company buys a small company, you have these things, so you have VPs, you have directors, you mm-hmm. know, that, you know, a VP in a company of 20 is very different than a VP in a company of 20,000. You know, it's not the same 
type seniority that you expect and scope of responsibility. So there's a matching exercise that happens during the acquisition of deciding, okay, this person who's a VP here or as a director here, what are they? You know, what is their kind of real seniority? And there's a paycheck element to it. And I think that got a lot of focus in sort of early conversations. But there's also an importance around your career trajectory in terms of like that banding is very important. So if I was to sort of try to condense this to like IQ guidance is, you know, in the moment of acquisition, that's not the most important thing, right? Like you're trying to figure out, would your team have a good home? What's the responsibility of the team over time in sort of the acquiring company? Would you be successful, right? Would people be happy? And of course, there's the financial terms of the deal itself. And so this bit of like, when you look at the team, what tier they're in, like your comp, you think about it, like the different people's comp, but your the tiers are generally not as discussed. But it's just to say that the individuals, if you put them in a band where they're kind of at the top end of that salary range and they round it down, then it's harder for them. Like once they're inside the company, it's harder for them to kind of get bumped up to that Mm -hmm. next year than maybe it might have been earlier on. So it sounds small, but it's just like a a bit that was actually a topic of conversation in that sort of IBM acquisition after because a lot of things were done right. Again, I don't want to sort of nitpick. I'm just sort of talking about this as an area of learning. When I went on to, to found, I left IBM and I founded Blaze, I co-founded Blaze with Mike Water, who was my boss at, uh, he was the founder of Watchfire and my boss in uh, <laughs> IBM. He joined it a little bit as a late co-founder. I started uh, before. So the two of us, you know, sort of started, uh, started Blaze, you know, first of all, on a personal note, which might be interesting to people, I, my, my son was born in October. I took uh, parental leave, I was living in Canada at the time, so you can take up to a, almost a year, I think, as a, as a father parental leave. You didn't get paid much, but you could kind of fall back to your job after. So instead of resigning, I took parental leave in January and I was kind of filling out what is it that I want to do, you know, with, with kind of the assumption that I would found a startup. But I, I had a three-month-old at home. I was, you know, kind of closing off in my bedroom, kind of geeking out, trying to sort of, you know, build all sorts of pieces of software, just trying to learn spaces. And then eventually landed on like, okay, I want to do this performance optimization piece. And, you know, I think by May or June, I, I resigned and I left IBM and I kind of properly started mm. Blaze. Um, and uh, Blaze was a shorter journey. So it was like a 20 month from incorporation to like, uh, yeah, even less than 20 months kind of from incorporation to it's acquisition. It was a team and technology acquisition. Uh, we had some initial market traction, but not really nothing, no revenue to speak of. And then we got acquired by, by Akamai. And if I was to distill a little bit of learnings here, so like there's a whole bunch, you know, a lot of things I would have done the same or differently. Uh, and I guess I got the chance to do some of them the same or differently with Sneak. But I think like there are a few, I'm not sure where to start, you know, on these, like there are a few key learnings from Motion we did to get started. So I think we started marketing before we had the product. So we had the, the website, the product made websites faster. And we had a, a video on the page saying, hey, do you want your, like it was just like a little video explaining that we make websites faster and how we move things around inside the app. Like we did front-end optimization. We coined the term front-end optimization. And what we did is we did a video that explains it. And we said, if you want to see your website uh, being faster or not, you know, plug your uh, URL here and your email and we'll show you a before and after uh, video. Wow. And then we had an automated system that would run it through our, very kind of duct taped together, but you know, the core tech was good, but like the surrounding was kind of still duct taped together, came out with a video that showed before and after, which was a very emotive, very like emotional response to say, yeah, I want that fast website, not my slow website. <laughs> right. who, who picks slower, right? 
and sent it to people. And that was probably like three or four months before they could actually like start implementing these things on their own sites. Wow. Uh, and it got us some lead gen and that was good. It got good traction. The other thing we did was we did um, mobile performance was hot at the time. You know, it still is. But at the time, you couldn't really measure your mobile performance site. So we outsourced a little mobile performance, like a, a little agent that would run on your mobile uh, on mobile apps. And we actually had like a, I bought an Ikea cabinet and some photo frames and bought a bunch of mobile devices and they would sit in that sort of Ikea yeah. <laughs> cabinet connected to a, to a server that we wrote and uh, based on WebPage test, which is an open source uh, software. Anyways, we measured, we opened a service called MobiTest that would measure your website and give you a bunch of visuals and, and uh, data on, uh, on a mobile device, on a real mobile device. And we did a, an Android versus iPhone uh, bake-off. And like Android came out ahead and the thing made top tech news for like three days. It was a whole experience you yeah. know, around it of like, I think wired titles were like, sorry, Steve, Steve Jobs was still alive at the time, you know, so, so Android smokes iPhone in uh, <laughs> these tests. That it was like a lot of iPhone fanboys, you know, kind of coming along and, and pushing against the study. <laughs> and it was, we had like three days of somewhere between shame and glory, depending on your perspective. Uh, but it definitely kind of helped uh, get us on the map. So I think the understanding your presence and your sort of market presence early uh, was definitely something we took into Sneak, uh, even if we did things that are very, very different. And then subsequently is like an understanding of the importance of biz dev and partnerships. So we built Blaze to accelerate website, but we weren't delivering the websites. We partnered with the CDNs and the uh, ADCs, the application delivery controllers, uh, so load balancers and the likes. And we really like designed the system to be integration friendly and integrated with a whole pile of them, given how early we were in the market. And I guess over there, and that to me is like maybe the tip is, we talked before about going long versus going short. And I think it's a decision that's important. Like I think with Blaze, we saw an important technology evolution and we didn't really see a big company. Right, yeah. And so we we partnered, we worked well with them. It helped locally to get, you know, better integrations and kind of get some customers. But it really helped when it came time to, to the acquisition because we had a lot of interested parties because we filled a good hole in, at the time, the somewhat commoditizing uh, world of performance optimization. You ever hear the term, this is a product, not a company? Is that kind of how you felt about Blaze? Like it's a product, not a company? Is that what you mean by that? I don't know if that's the right term. Maybe, maybe it's a product, not a company. It was just limited in scope. We had thoughts about how can we transform websites for a variety of other reasons, like accessibility, like maybe even visually and, and such. But we didn't have true conviction. So we could have gone longer, but really we felt, and this wasn't at the very beginning, it was probably a realization about a year in, that if if you're honest, then that technology really should sit alongside you know the entities that provide network level acceleration and delivery of the website. Which means you would have had to build that kind of company. So either we could compete precisely, and there's actually, right. like there are examples, there were CDNs, uh, there was a CDN called Instart Logic, which... In, to my perception, and again, they might portray it differently, they basically were founded around the same time as Blaze. They built a CDN that had front-end optimization built into it. By the time they came out of stealth, because it takes a long time to build a, C a CDN, all the sort of the big CDNs have already built or acquired you know, some, some, <laughs> some front-end optimization capabilities, and that differentiation was no longer a differentiation you know, mm -hmm. that, that held. So you know, we chose the core feature, the capability, the product, but it wasn't so much a company. And so, 
Yeah. Anyways, I, I rambled a bit, but you know, that kind of, I think that's my sort of history. The acquisition itself, I think there's a lot to love there. You know, we really picked, we had the advantage of being able to pick the right home for the team and like where we thought both the team and the product should live. And the team is thriving. The vast majority of the team is still at Akamai. Uh, the branch in Ottawa, Canada has has grown to own a lot more, like they're executing really well. So they've grown in the responsibilities they've taken out in terms of products in Akamai. They've built other new products. And I think based on the learnings from before, we built the right level of integration and isolation. The, the location helped. It was a separate location. So it was a little bit arm's length from the rest of Akamai, which allowed more independence and to preserve some startup methodology and agility and yeah. kind of uh, spunk. But then we also made sure that we're integrated well and connected people. I took the CTO role. So my role very quickly was broader than just the sort of the acquisition that we've made. And I think we, you know, not all by intent, you know, sometimes it's, we, we got lucky, but I think we struck the right balance of, of that sort of integration versus independence in that acquisition. You mentioned you moved into the CTO role, which gives you a chance to sort of look wider at Akamai and potentially even be a good lookout for the team that you're sort of launching within, I suppose. It seems like a, a proper term there. What was your stint after that? Were you happily at Ak- Akamai for a while? How long did you stay there before Sneak came to be? Yeah, so I, I stayed at Akamai for three and a half years. It was a great journey. You know, I really learned a ton, you know, whether it's building business cases inside the company. There are amazing people at Akamai, you know, so definitely learned a lot from from people and built a network. I think it's important when you get acquired to invest the time in helping others. And so as CTO at Akamai, I could help more uh, to sort of founders and entrepreneurs and other companies around to connect them with relevant customers in a mutually beneficial, like, you know, a, a customer of Akamai oftentimes wants to hear about, you know, a cool performance startup that's around, right? And there's no, you have to stay clean in terms of like, I had no financial interest in any of these things, but just like being helpful and connecting. And I think that type of networking and reach really helped me later. And it also taught me, once again, you know, I learned a lot to me, at this point, you know, it's sometime after the Akamai acquisition, I started doing angel investing. And again, I have kind of a good phrasing from a friend, which is that when you're a founder, you learn in serial. And when you're an investor, you learn in parallel. You see different companies, you see how they work, whether you're helping those just ad hoc, you know, helping those companies or whether you're an angel investor. And so I learned a lot, you know, from all those companies. And that helped me understand what I want to do better. And eventually I moved with Akamai to, to London, to London, UK. After about a year and a half, I guess, at Akamai, or two, no, more like two, two and a half years, I moved to London. And yeah, and then kind of got the itch. At some point, I sort of, I felt like uh, I want to do it. I was going to take a year off uh, in between, and that didn't, that <laughs> that didn't, didn't happen. happen. I, no, I, w- when I decided to, there was probably about a six-month process from the point in time I decided to resign and when I was fully out, because I also had a long notice period. And when I decided to resign, I said, I'm going to take a year off. Somewhere sort of midway, I sort of said, well, maybe six months would be enough. And then I eventually left Akamai on July 1st and incorporated on July 7th. Uh, okay, so a week. Yeah, maybe six days. <laughs> and I was, I was mostly off that summer. I got the itch and I got stuck on the idea. Let's pause there. What's the point of taking off then? How do you, when you take off, like you, you did it before Blaze, right? You took off, well, you, you were on paternity leave which is similar to taking off, but you were using that as a position of figuring out your, out your next direction. When you do these kinds of exercises or lack thereof, in this case, 
you know, what is your intention with the time? Is it to recharge with family? Is it is it to sort of like chip off at your bucket list or not so much, you know, to be morbid like that, but maybe things you want to do in your life? What's the point of the tent to take off? It's a really good question. And I think my primary goal was not to jump into the first thing that you see, you know, just there are a lot of great ideas and there are a lot of great people that you can partner with. And when you're in one mindset, for instance, you're sort of an executive in a large company, then it's very refreshing and some and nice to sort of see, you know, an exciting new company and to start opening that thought of saying, hey, can I join that or can I found I get enamored with an idea and, and found it. And I think what you want to force yourself is not to jump on the first idea that you see or the team that you get excited by. And so to me, when I thought about the break, part of it was, yeah, can I rest on my laurels a bit? Can I kind of recharge? But in practice, I think for me, you know, that six-month period, I had about four-month notice period. So from the time it was announced to the team to the time I was out, I probably had about three or four months. From the time I decided to leave, I was already thinking about things. I've already been engaged with a whole bunch of startups to sort of be, you know, fresh in that space. And so for me, I think that period of time already kind of happened in parallel to that departure from Akamai, uh, even without the intent, right? I've, I've seen enough and I've learned enough. I don't believe so much in regretting kind of the time that you've invested, right? Yeah. I have both in the company and in my personal life, I believe in sort of big vision, small steps, you know, like you want to aim somewhere and that somewhere needs to be kind of worthy of accomplishing, right? You know, it doesn't have to be a life ambition. It can be temporary, but you want to have some goals that you're working towards. But then again, you need to have these strategic opportunity taking. And what you don't want to do is to do steps that you really regret. So you either win or you learn, right? You know, like, you know, you sort of, you make a step. And if it's learning something that you didn't care to learn, then could you have avoided doing that in the first place? So I, I take that stance with family life as well. You know, while I work hard, I don't sacrifice my family life, you know, to in favor of the startup. You know, for instance, now it's Sneak. And, and since the beginning of Sneak, you know, it, with all the massive intensity that Sneak has, I have a block in my calendar from 6.30 to 9 p.m. And I make sure that I'm home to have dinner with my kids. And so I have breakfast and dinner with my kids. I do have some travel, which I can't avoid. So, and that sometimes gets a bit heavy, but I try to do it. And look, oftentimes at 9 p.m., I'm back at the computer and I'm having kind of calls with the West Coast, you know, from London. But that's okay for me. Like, that's a balance that I strike. I've always been good at taking time off. Even when I'm at the midst of it, I would take time off. I try to truly disconnect on the weekends. And so I work really hard, but I have lines that I try to be very diligent about to not cross. I don't want to be in a place in which... I've just for a few years sacrificed family for uh now there are balances, you know, yeah. these things are are ranges, they're not sort of black and white. But anyways, all that said is that I don't think I needed a lot more. If I could just like take my foot off the gas a little bit in Akamai in the last sort of few months, that was really all I needed for recharging. And then like not press it all the way on the gas when I started sneak. That was kind of all I needed for recharging. When it comes to family, as you mentioned there the way I see what you're describing for me is I can make a choice for a season, you know? So if I'm going to not so much sacrifice my family to be so brash like that, but if I'm going to trade off some of the time, I have to give myself a time period. Okay. I could do it for three months or through this push in particular. Once we get through this, 
I've got to give that that time back to my family. And, and I might even have that conversation with my wife prior to and say, listen, for the next three months, things are going to be a little bit different. The point is, is just I do it as a season, knowing the beginning and the end. And if I'm going to do it, it's going to be for a very purposeful reason and not just like for the sake of sacrificing my life, my wife, my family for something that in the end, you know, for your life, guy, like later on in your life, once sneak is done or this is all through, the things that really matter is what? Your family. Yep. Right. Yep. So I think that's a great way to sort of put it, and we'll talk about a season. And I also think you have to think about the aspects that are in your control. When you're in a downturn, like, you know, where we are right now, there's a certain amount of investment I need to do, you know, when you look at the sort of the coronavirus mm -hmm. crisis, that I have to invest in the company. We're in a good place, and we're in good shape, you know, as compared to many other companies. But if you get drawn and you need to invest there, you need to invest it. That's a part of the responsibility. Similarly, you know, if unfortunately there's whatever, some sort of medical case or some other sort of, you know, crisis at home that you have to deal with, with, then the company has to do it. So there's definitely elements that are outside of your reach and you have to make sure that you sort of, you know, jump off and uh, and do what you need to. And I think when you do these presses, then yeah, they have to be time bound. And I guess that's the thing about the startup is a startup is not a short journey. It's not a season. You know, a conference season is a season, you know, like you're going to fly around a lot in September and October and a little bit of November and hopefully in December and January, you know, you get to be sort of, you know, in February, you get to be home more because there's less conferences around. That's okay. That's a seasonal decision. But I think, you know, a startup is you should anticipate a multi-year journey and that's too long to sort of say, hey, I'll put personal life aside for that period of time. I think I, <laughs> I, I rambled a bit. All of this is pre-sneak, you know, so. Yeah. I do think that uh, you learned a lot in all of these different stages. Uh, there's always uh, something bigger to do, which in my case was uh, was sneak. Well, the opposite of a sales acronym ABC, I like to do ABL. Always be learning, you know. Always be learning is the is my key. Yeah, I can see personally for me, and similar, I can see for you, is that my entire journey, everything I've learned, like you know, this isn't about about my story, but I'll give you a, a short snippet. Uh, I had been in some sort of sales role early in my career. Like when I was 18, I worked at a, a call center. This is back when making those things, like I'm 41. So making those calls at a call center as a telemarketer was a thing you did way back when. And then I went into a sales role. But there's so many things I've done over my career that I can see that have layered on, always be learning to get me to where I'm at today. And then not only get me here, but enable me to be the best me in the position I am to do what I'm doing. And it's just interesting that people don't always see today as their learning day to do tomorrow better, you know, or to do tomorrow the way they want to sort of like take stock of the fact that where you're at today is for a reason and what you're learning today is for a reason, whether it's an acquisition that went wrong or an acquisition that went good or whatever the case might be, to take that knowledge in and to just use it for the future forward. And sometimes people get caught up in the what if in the future and they kind of forget to take stock of today and what they've mm -hmm. done. And it seems like you've done a very wise maneuver through your career to sort of understand your position today, where you're trying to eventually go. Like I'm sure way back when you didn't maybe see yourself as a founder, maybe you did, but the point was, was that you were the whole time leveraging these opportunities and these scenarios to, to learn so that today as a founder of Sneak, you can do what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have to use the opportunity you have right now. Right. And if you're, if you're not growing, you're falling back, you know, and, uh, and also it's just about, we only have so much time on this planet, right? So you want to uh, want to take advantage of it. Hey there, are you curious? Because if you are, I have a podcast recommendation for you. 
one of the best ways to find new podcasts is to be recommended one, and that's what I'm here to do. So you may have heard this before, but we have a show called Brain Science. It is literally for the curious. We're exploring the human brain to understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and really what it means to be human. So here's a preview of a recent episode 23 on brain science. It's called Your Brain Can Change. It's an exploration of genes, epigenetics, and neuroplasticity. Without making this show completely about all my flaws, there's definitely been things that I've done that I haven't outlined that I've obsessed over that was not, you know, in your words, that was maladaptive. Mm -hmm. You know, wasn't good for my life, wasn't good for my trajectory of career or who I was as a human. Mm -hmm. You know, like the person I was, definitely many things. Right. Yeah. Well, so I could even sort of out myself here a little bit of like, you know, even given, right, we all manage stress differently and graduate school can be a stressful time in one's life. I remember this time where in, so it was when Krispy Kreme, if you don't know Krispy Kreme, it's a donut place that oh, yes. like <laughs> electrify the sign, right? They, they sort of highlight it that says, hey, hot donuts now, right? And they happen right. to install one on my way between my house and my school. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> right? But yes. Right. Because <laughs> they're that good. <laughs> they were that good. And so I would love my Krispy Kreme sort of indulgence. But it took time to be like, you know what? I, I called it the 10-minute phenomenon of like, it was so good and so yummy going down. And then 10 minutes later, I was going like, why? Why did you do that, mm. Marielle? Like these conversations with myself. And so- I had to actually use restraint to not continue. And it was so easy, right? Because you just pull right in. It's on the All way. All right. To keep listening, head to changelog.com slash brain science slash 23 or search for brain science in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Look up episode 23, titled Your Brain Can Change, where we talk about epigenetics, genes, neuroplasticity, and a story of hope and an opportunity for change. Again, changelog.com slash brain science slash 23 or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. We'd love to have you as a listener. Well, let's talk about sales. When when organizations, I guess, decide to become adopted by a large user base or provide an on-ramp, so to speak, for new users, there's often... Let's give it away for free. We get mass adoption. Everyone will use it because there's no barrier. And you got kind of two different models that sort of fit in there, which is freemium, which we could talk about. And then this free trial model, which sort of enables both of those things. But there's just different ways you could slice it. What's your experience on this front? I'm actually quite passionate about the sort of the freemium uh, versus free trial uh, type model. So what I feel is that people conflate them, right? Um, so Snake is, is a, a freemium model. Right and and what does that mean? And I'll you know extrapolate for uh, beyond beyond Snake Force, uh, which is we actually serve a use case for users uh, that would never pay us, uh, and we serve that use case really well for a long period of time. You know, or again until they basically don't qualify for that use case. You know, for us, for in, for, in, for instance, we support uh, individual developers who want to secure their applications, uh, as well as small teams within our freemium tier. 
Uh, and and there's no there's no buts there's no exceptions. We also support open source users. That's the, sort of the maybe even the first profile uh, or people protecting open source platforms. And and those users are uh, are should be you know we sort of do all we can to make them really happy with the product. You know, independent of whatever purchasing ability. There's a use case there about an individual developer, about an open source developer, about a small team. Uh, where the product should, within the free tier, truly deliver success. Um, and and in general, I think in freemium, that's what you need, is you need to define uh, a use case that you will support for a, an extended period of time, right? And, uh, and that people, or for forever, presumably, right? That people would run. Free trial is really about a chance to explore the capabilities of your product. And what people do is they call it freemium because they think of free trial as something that is only limited by time. Uh, and so they say, well, no, if it's not a time-limited thing, it's not a trial. But in practice, they don't solve any use case. So they, uh, for instance, uh, say you have uh, uh, you know, a collaboration tool, right? And you allow collaboration for up to five users. Um, as uh, as something that's within your within your free tier, but your product really only brings true value. Like you know, the product that you've designed is really around large group collaboration. You know, in collaboration amidst five people, you know, let's assume for a second it was like a Slack style system. Well, the value is fairly dubious. You know, like it's not really that significant when you're five people. You don't really care about that much assisted collaboration between between five of you. I mean, you can communicate pretty well. So you find yourself not really solving a problem. And in earnest, you don't actually want people that are five-person teams uh, to use it. What you want is you want the hundred-person team or the thousand-person team to start with five people. But for those people, you never started, you never solved an actual use case, an actual problem that they've had. Um, and so this this type of, of uh, mistake typically happens when people think about freemium last. What they basically do is they say, well, I'll build a, uh, you know, like let's say in, in our case, right, I, I will build a, a security solution. I will price it by the number of developers building the application. Uh, and therefore, uh, I will now, um, how, do I, how do I keep people? I'll, I'll give people something for free, but I will keep it... Uh, um, uh, uh, from from encroaching on my commercial, I want to keep enough value in my premium tier uh, so that there's enough people that would move over to uh, to upgrade. Um, and and so they they start from that and they they reduce it reduce it back down, right? Or they they now say, okay, I will only allow up to five developers, right? And if I was to do that, and I would say, well, it's only teams of up to five developers, then basically none of those is probably going to be that significant kind of a customer, right? If it's organizations with with no more than five developers, that's not really the profile that I'm trying to reach. So what you really want to do is you want to to understand what is, like for a given user, what is the use case that you are solving for them, right? Like you start with the users you want to reach, you know, the people that you want to reach in the first place, right? Uh, developers, right, as, as a whole, and then developers within enterprises. Then you want to say, well, what's the problem that you want to solve for them? Like, let's say you have a team over there, right? Or you have an individual developer there. What is the problem that they want to uh, to solve, 
right? Well, they want to find out if there are vulnerabilities in their in their code. And now you you build a solution that helps them helps them address that, right? Like helps them, you know, find those problems and be very comfortable with the fact that they will never never kind of pay you. Um, and then as you expand it, when you think about okay, like another use case for us is developers in open source, you know, like an open source project developer. Well. What is the use case that I solve that for that user? I help them integrate into their open source project, you know, an ability to identify and uh, and fix known vulnerabilities, and I and I want to do that indefinitely. What is it that I that I want that developer, like those two developers, to do is very different, right? The developer in the enterprise, what I want to do is I want to make them successful, but then I want them to you know help introduce to other team members. I want them to maybe you know I want to inform them about my commercial capabilities. I want them to engage sales when appropriate, so that they would go off to the purchase. The open source developers, what do I want them to do? Well, you know, above and beyond, again, being like the first case, you know, be, being successful and loving the solution, what I want them to do is tell the world. You know, I want them to sort of, you know, help the world know that, you know, open source security matters and that Sneak is a good way to address this, right? So if they, you know, publicly talk about me, right, or about Sneak, and if they uh, help educate their sort of peers, then that provides that value. And I shouldn't bother them around sort of purchasing. I can also consider saying, well, if I think that this person might work at a job, you know, work on also non-open source projects, maybe I want to have them consider using Sneak in that surrounding. So these were all like very Sneak-specific uh, examples, but I think that the key distinction here is like when you have a solution, right, and you think about how do you, how do you bring it to market, there's this aspiration that it'll be a freemium-led uh, go to market, right? So you want to get this like masses of people using your product and you want some portion of them naturally growing to, to buy your product. And, and what often happens is like you will unleash, you know, sort of a, a freemium product and then nobody would use it, right? Or the products would not, uh, would not really get adopted. You have to think to, to avoid that problem or if you see that that's happening, you have to stop and think who are the people that this freemium product works for you know what? What are the use cases? You know that I'm truly solving for them, and what is it that I want them to to that, that I, as a business, you know, a little bit more cynically, want to get you know out of uh, out of them. Um, and 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 you know what? If you can't figure those out, that's entirely legit. You don't have to have a framing model. If you don't have those solutions, if the minimum use of your product is one that really should be commercial, then it should be a free trial. But then you should adjust your uh, your methodologies, right? Adjust your expectations. That what you're really doing is you're doing you're offering them a free trial, uh, and 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 you should convey it accordingly to them, right? To say this is a trial of our capabilities, so they don't have the misconception that your product is limited in the way that, that you've provided. I like the distinction between freemium and then having a paid tier with a free trial because uh, in most cases, in any sales opportunity period, you have, okay, when we're done doing whatever we deliver, what is success? You know, and that's use case, right? What is successful use of software? What is successful use of this service? You know, what is successful execution of whatever we plan to do, right? And if you give them a free trial of that, if they require that, then that gives you something to optimize towards, which is, hey, here's a sliver of success in a free trial. This makes you feel comfortable, gives you trust, gives you feedback to sell others on so that you can move into this premium tier that's paid. However, if you've got a freemium model, I like the idea that you sort of maybe even have 
to some degree both as necessary. You know, for sure, freemium, if that makes sense for your business, especially as your organization has been able to align that around a use case that sort of helps the world, right? There's a lot of developers out there who need to focus on security around open source, their software, et cetera. And so this freemium model allows you to do that. And the benefit you get as Sneak is to enable them to tell the world because they've had success with it. And it's it's a, a band of people that will generally, as you said before, never pay or not be in a payment scenario. Can you, can you kind of extrapolate on that side of things, how you know that they're a worthwhile user and you can solve problems for them? However, they're never going to really be a position to pay you. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think um, like freemium can totally, like a freemium user is a legitimate, you know, funnel or sort of, you know, entity in the funnel. It's okay that they also advance to pay. The the key distinction is is basically, if we were to standardize the definition of what success is, right? A free trial's success is understanding your product's capability and their applicability to their organization. So that's really what a trial tries to do. While a freemium model, that person might indeed purchase, but in a freemium model, like for me in, at Sneak, for instance, you know, I, you know, we have countless of examples of uh, either it's, you know, for instance, we had like in one of the biggest media companies, we had an open source user, an avid, you know, open source user, loved the product, used the product, heard that their organization is, is reconsidering their open source uh, uh, security tooling or open source governance tooling and introduced us into the company with a very sort of warm recommendation, which eventually helped us go on and win the deal and then grow with that customer uh, substantially. Um, Another example, actually within a financial organization, is that we had a team that was more front-end minded uh, that uh, really liked our technology and used the free tier because the volume, it was a small team, and the volume that that we provided with our command line interface in the uh, uh, um, uh, in the free tier that we had was sufficient for them to actually sort of centrally find you know vulnerabilities and components that were submitted to them. Uh, and then they said, okay, we want to standardize this and we want to build this up, you know, inside the organization. We want to build it into the pipelines. We want to grow it to a lot to many more developers. Both of those cases were freemium users. Both could have continued. In fact the open source user has continued using it in a way that doesn't pay. But over a long period of time, we made them successful. We didn't just try to push them down the funnel because their use case didn't fit the funnel, but they were the right individuals to go towards uh, the organization. But if we, but we had to understand the use cases that we are trying to solve for, for us to be able to help them be, be successful. So I think yeah. it's really about that definition of success uh, and and its and its time horizon. Um, I mean, I think fundamentally the 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 easy question is, who do you expect to use your free tier of your product, and what for, and for how long? And if if the answer to the sort of the the, the how long is you know very briefly or just as they evaluate right. Uh, or if the who do you expect to use it is just not someone you care about sort of in your funnel, like it's just not realistic for you to do it, then then that's an, an, indi- uh, an indicator of a problem, right? And you have to think about, okay, so what is the tie between this sort of freemium element? And, and sometimes you don't need to give as much. Um, and by the way, an extreme version of this is open source-based software, right? Which is people... People should ask the same question when they say, "Should I open source my software?" 
because open source to an extent is an extreme version of freemium. It's a freemium that you cannot back out of. And so, so you have to think, who is it that will actually use my open source software uh, and you know, for what use case, and then for what use case would they use the premium? And you have to ask the same questions you know, of, uh, of walking them down, the, down that funnel. Where do you begin then, I suppose? If, uh, how do you extrapolate that against, say, tiering your product? Do you begin with identifying what might fit into freemium and then everything else is divvied up into tiers? It, it, so I guess maybe specific to you, how did you define your tiers with Sneak? Yeah, so I think uh, I think the the distinction of freemium. So it depends on where you are. If you are an open source uh, based uh, uh, solution, then then that's a very big decision. It's a one way door to sort of go open source, uh, pretty much. And so so you have to really sort of think long and hard to do it. So it, and it's it's not that flexible. Um, if you're a service, it's a little bit more flexible. You can make something free and then not make it free or change what you give for free. Uh, it is more significant than changing your premium tiers. Um, generally, changing your premium tiers is something that is really not a big deal as long as you don't go back and try to sort of milk old customers for for more money or you do, if you do that reasonably. Um, then generally, you can change your pricing and you probably will change your pricing many times. So I would say the... But, but for free tier, if you manage to build any sort of community around it, you have to be much more careful about changing what's included. Uh, it's always easy to add, uh, but it's it's hard to reduce. So I would say you actually probably should spend more time thinking about your free versus commercial than the way you split up your commercial, at least at the very beginning when you introduce the free. Um, mm-hmm. And then within the free... It, it really, it, it boils down, I think, to the questions that I talked about. I don't have as, as crisp a framework for this, but, but it's to say, you know, who is going to use your free tier, you know, for what use cases and, and for how long? And then what would make, you know, what do I want this user to do? You know, what do I want this user to do to sort of help my business? Um, and if you just define, if you sit down and you write that down, uh, then, mm-hmm. then I think I think it would make things fairly clear, uh, you know, pretty quickly. For, from here, you either got the right answers, like either you got a very clear answer. You know, you know, if you think about our, you know, for for Sneak, you know, we started and the focus was developers. Developers get to use the product very successfully. It's really when it gets to large teams and when it gets to engaging the security audience that you go to commercial. Then, then you just run with it. If you don't have the right answer, you have to either continue experimenting on what your um, what your free tier should include, um, so that you can you can sort of uh, you know, f- find the right use case that you can support amidst this relevant user base. Or if the user base was the problem, you need to go off and say, okay, like, so this is the relevant user base here, right? Like maybe I want security people to start this right away. You know, what is the use case that I can offer them? And if you can't answer those questions, maybe freemium isn't for you, you know? Like maybe <laughs> maybe it is about free trial and you can still have a great inbound, bottom-up, content-oriented, you know, like you, you can still have a great community-fueled product without it being freemium. Like it doesn't have to be uh, the same but but don't fool yourself, I guess, uh, on those uh, on those fronts. There's a couple of key points I want to touch on, but I do want to move into your story of Sneak and what's going on there. You know, dev tooling, security first, developer first, security, all these things that are really important in today's world. But kind of layer in for me, you mentioned helping earlier. That you know how important helping 
helped you later on. Maybe dovetail that into Sneak, what you've done there. Because like you'd mentioned when you were at Akamai, you were helping others. That's a very, you often hear, if you want to get ahead, help somebody. How's that worked for you? Yeah, so for sure. So to me, a lot of it came back from to the community. Uh, so you know, some of the help with with Akamai was to sort of you know help the odd founder uh, and uh, and connect them with with relevant customers. But a lot of my investment at the time was helping the performance and ops communities. You know, I was very much a part of the sort of the Velocity Conference, the DevOps movement in the early days, and helping from an Akamai perspective, bring Akamai into that mix, but then also help that community thrive. And when it comes to Sneak, you know, that's really probably one of the key tailwinds that we had, you know, the kind of the key pushes that we that we got that really helped us take off in the first place. So Sneak was founded in this combination, for me, a combination of my two journeys. So it was, on one hand, the application security background, the constant desire to get developers to embrace security. On the other side, this, you know, first line, uh, first row kind of view, if not actual kind of uh, on stage participation in the change of DevOps and, you know, the performance and ops industries were the first ones to be disrupted, right? Sort of seeing what it means to build solutions that are really dev-oriented, what's important to this community and how to work with it. And so we built the company, you know, I built the company from the get-go, you know, with uh, not just a technology perspective, but a community perspective. It was the idea that if you want to build a solution that really is compelling for developers, right, the developers actually want to embrace, it's not just about building a developer tool, it's about building a developer tooling company. And as that company, it implies, first of all, like the culture of the company is one that is open and is transparent, that the way we communicate outside is, you know, does what it says on the tin, you know, anywhere from, you know, we talked about builder and breaker, and we had these like long conversations about how can we be a builder, not a breaker. And it, it, for instance, if I give you like a, a very specific example, but just to show how deep it went, which is the color scheme of the website, you know, so we talked about how I tell you about vulnerabilities in your application and, you know, some of them are very severe. And so overall, our color scheme and our thesis was very much like, you know, needs to be warm, not a fear mongerer, right? We help you build quality software that includes being secure and we're sort of a part of that builder community. But, you know, when I tell you that you have a high severity vulnerability, I kind of want you to you know like appreciate the urgency (laughs) in doing something about it and so we talked about the color scheme and we got this magenta you know sort of you know like midway understanding of what the right color scheme is so every tidbit about how do we work we're free for open source we give a lot to the community we participate in these open source uh, foundations so a lot of it actually got embedded into the company of being one that works with hand in hand with the outside world with the developer community we shipped a really a really minimalist product, I would say like a pretty crappy uh, uh, kind of initial product about a month in, like really it was maybe a month or two old as beta, nobody was paying for it. You know, we launched it at Velocity Amsterdam and we iterated with the community and that's still how we work. Like we ship things we don't think we know better. We ship it out and we work with the customers and we do it all the way from like the largest sort of, you know, large seven figure, you know, big financial or technology institutions we work with them we learn from them our engineers you know talk to them directly and interact with them and we do it you know as part of that community 
and you know on our freemium users you know we haven't tiered support uh or anything like that you know we still you know answer all these support calls you know very rapidly we're trying to be very transparent with what we're building and so if i go back a little bit to the founding of it i think that notion of brand of not brand but rather like almost the karma of people helping out really helped get you know, the DevOps community to take that leap of faith Mm -hmm. to say, yeah, we know we haven't liked security tools before, but, you know, we kind of trust the guy. You know, I also brought some great people uh, to to join me also from that community that had some brand and some notoriety and some reach, you know, within the developer world. I added, you know, sort of good, great people, you know, two co-founders from Israel, Danny and Asaf, who were both kind of great people that kind of helped embed the, uh, the culture, but also brought in even deeper security expertise than than what I had and helped build the branch in Israel because we had a Tel Aviv and London kind of shared kind of a two-headed monster approach, you know, from the beginning we sort of split it into two. And that really kind of helped get us off the ground to build out the product and crack the code on how do we build a develop a security tool developers will embrace. Um, revenue took a couple of years more, <laughs> but but we managed to really kind of break through to developers, which was the most important challenge. Especially as you you know, lead with this developer first security, you know, DevSecOps, you often hear just DevOps and you got to put security in the middle there. And what we often find is developers, security is to some degree an afterthought. It's like performance, making it, making it work, et cetera. And the security of it to some degree comes after it's sort of built in an afterthought in a lot of cases. And, you know, what you've been doing in this last several years has really been around bringing security into the mix and you mentioned tooling and not a security company being sort of the position you took as, I'm not really sure how to frame it, but just the fact that you were focused on the tooling part of it and developers rather than just simply being a security company. You don't find fixes or you don't fix the fixes, you find them and enable others to fix them and help that kind of thing. So talk about that position, like why tooling was the way in, I guess, the, why developers needed to have security baked into their processes, how you do that with tooling. Yeah, and I think it's more about the developer. It's maybe more the word developer in the developer tooling than just the tooling. Mm-hmm. So the, the key difference is practically all security solutions out there are built for auditors. They're built for security people, which makes sense. They're also the ones buying them. And then we want the developers to use them as well. And then what happened was that the, as an industry, we built auditor tools and we integrated them into a developer environment. And lo and behold, they didn't work well for developers because developers are not auditors. They don't have the same needs, the same surrounding responsibility, the same pre-existing kind of expertise. And so the primary change that we did was that we said, okay, developer first. If I'm a developer, what do I need? And it led us to all sorts of like substantial changes in how we devised the solution. And the tools were the ways to make it accessible. So for example, you know, in the world of known vulnerabilities, it's the, the norm is to tell you, hey, this application uses 500 libraries. You know, these five are vulnerable. Go fish, you know, like go figure <laughs> out how these five came in. Well, in practice, as a developer, you don't use 500 libraries. You use 15. And those 15 brought in this 100 and those 100 brought in those 500. So as a developer, what I really want to know is like which of my 15 brought in a vulnerability, right? And how does it come along? I want an application context. So that was something that we, we learned and we built and we built 
what is you know fairly unique now kind of there's some uh, you know yeah. a little bit more uh, uh, becoming standard which is you know present the vulnerabilities in, a, in an application tree dependency tree context or like our git integration where do developers discover tools well developers want to try it out and generally the place where code review happens is on git is in these pull requests that get opened up you want to review it so that's where we want to interject that's where we want to introduce a problem where they're hanging out at Exactly. And so we built an integration into GitHub and that was really hard. Like we had to build the technology to take source code that wasn't built and, you know, the dependency system hasn't kicked in yet and approximate, kind of build out the dependency graph without building the app, which every dependency ecosystem is its own unique snowflake and it's really hard. And you can sort of argue, like it was very compelling to say, no, just run it in the command line interface as we had before. And you ask the dependency system, which libraries are here. But that didn't provide the developer user experience. The developer user experience was, I want to integrate on my source code when I do code review. I also want you to only tell me about problems that I introduced with these code changes. I don't really care at the moment about other problems that might already exist in my system. I want to know if my code changes introduced a new problem, which amazingly is not something solutions do because an auditor doesn't care. Like an auditor cares about the overall state of the application. And of course, I'm generalizing here. So all of these are like just a few of many, many examples of think about it from through the developer's eyes. And I think all of those approaches, whether it's discovery or where do we integrate and the core technologies, how do we present results, were very different. And the tools is what makes it easy. Every single developer in the world, if it was the same effort to build something that is insecure and something that is secure, they would choose to build something that is secure. The problem is it's not the same effort. Like it's really, really hard. So what we need to do is we need to make it easier. You know, like if there's a line of how much you care and a line of how hard it is, the line of how hard it is to be lower than the line of how much uh, you care. So we're going to inch along how much you care. We're going to educate. We can learn, you know, security breaches and all that. We all care about security more and more every day. But we really dropped the line of how hard it is. And I think that was the key to getting this to users. And that's where tools kick in. Like, you know, we had to embed the simplification. We had to embed the grunt work, embed the security expertise into the tool to make something that used to be hard easy and compelling for dev. Everything we do, like we, when we went into container security, same approach. What is different? As a developer, what do I need you know, from a container security solution? And if I just throw one example, is like it's a separation from the base image to uh, the Docker file. From a security person perspective, there's an image, there are vulnerabilities there. But as a developer, night and day, if the vulnerability was introduced with my code, if you will, in my Docker file when I installed yeah. a bunch of things on it versus it's the base image that I pulled down. So a lot of these things, and then like the last example, I just cannot mention it is the automated fixing. So maybe the biggest difference between a developer and an auditor is that an auditor's job is to find problems and a developer's job is to fix them. Yeah. Uh, and so if, if I build a developer tool that just finds problems, developers are not going to like me too much. So what we built is we built a tool that actually finds those problems, figures out how to fix them and package that up as a pull request and opens that up to your repository. Well, thank you. Then you want that. Then you get that reaction of saying, why would I do that if the tool can do it for me? Um, So anyways, I get excited a little bit when I talk about it, but I think there's a lot of passion and I think because like this needs to happen and it needs to happen across the industry to really think about developers' needs versus the um, kind of security mandate and expect developers to to fall in line. 
Right. I think a lot of that comes with a, a mind change to developers, right? It, it, for a while, it had just been just DevOps. And, you know, as of recently, and part of a lot of the movement you've done and the work you've been doing in community, as you, as you mentioned, you know, your journey has been around changing minds. And I heard you mention on a podcast recently, you said this term shift left. And I think about changing the minds. How do you get developers to embrace security? That's the thing, right? So you can build a great tool and they can do all these amazing things. But if developers don't consider it, well, then how do you help developers shift left? Yeah, exactly. And I think I actually kind of like to say that shift left is really important. It's this notion of like moving testing and like security activities earlier in the cycle. But I like to think that like the big change is not shift left, but it's top to bottom. It's uh, it's this notion of shifting security from being central and kind of centrally mandated and controlled to being a bottom-up movement. We expect developers, application teams, DevOps teams, to make decisions and to be autonomous, right? So that they can very quickly, you know, learn what they need to do, build a solution, ship that to market, learn from it, iterate again and again, right? The, the, the tighter the loop, the faster, you know, the better the business uh, results are. Yet, and we expect them to build secure software, and yet we don't trust them to make security decisions. So there's a dissonance here. There's a problem. So security has to take the lens. Like developers have to change. They have to embrace a bunch of these things, and the tools need to simplify it. But actually, security needs to change very substantially as well. They need to change from being ones that succeed by doing, by being the expert that understands both application and security and is able to combine the two, being a superhero, to succeeding by helping developers build secure software, right? Or make secure decisions, kind of like ops did when they went from like more IT operations where they're operating the systems to more of an SRE, you know, sort of DevOps orientation where you equip the developers so that they can build operable software, right? And then operate it themselves. So I think the change has to happen. Well, yeah, you know, developer first security is, uh, is an interesting concept and an interesting thing. Obviously you built the ginormous business around it reached unicorn status. You haven't even said that yet, guy. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, you started from the bottom. Now you're here. It's, it's crazy that, uh, this last round, I, I don't know if it was the last round of the one before that, where you'd said we've reached uh, unicorn status, yeah. which is great. But, um, as part of the, this community focus of sneak Two, you'd mentioned this, not just building a company and a tooling company, but building a company for the community that can really embrace a lot of the things you'd mentioned, uh, a recent acquisition from you was the DevSecCon, which is a conference. Obviously, things with COVID-19 have changed some things. I'm curious what your perspective is there on, I suppose, communities meeting online or not. But this aspect of how do you make security not only a developer concern, but a community concern? Is that what you're doing with DevSecCon and you know what you're doing with uh, the podcast you run and everything else? Yeah, as part of our commitment to the community or a part of the need for the community to go through this transition as they did in DevOps uh, is around giving the community places where they can share knowledge. You know, security is is really quite terrible in sharing practices. There's this sort of natural tendency by many to to just hold all the information to yourself, right, and not share, be very secretive. And that's very counter to how DevOps works. You know, DevOps is around collaboration. We learn from one another, right? We communicate, we trust. And so early on, we we tried to just sort of educate, right? And sort of share practices. And then subsequently, I started the podcast, The Secure Developer, and then we built My DevSecOps, which we called the Secure Developer Community at first, and we renamed to My DevSecOps. And then the last big event was indeed DevSecCon, which we acquired. All of them are really on that sort of same mantle of 
giving the community a stage, you know, companies giving individuals that have important learnings to share about how do they change, how do they mobilize their organizations to embrace this new approach to security, give them a stage to share that. And this is happening across different areas. It happens, you know, when you talk about sort of cloud native companies like, you know, sort of Auth0 or, or Segment, right, or sort of companies that are more cloud native and they built it. They kind of were born in the cloud and born with that mindset and sort of have them share how they did it to companies like uh, I had a, a Roland Cloutier, who was the CISO of ADP. He's now the CISO of TikTok, you know, talk about how does he shift, you know, which is a pretty massive undertaking, kind of shift an existing beast of security organization to this sort of newer mentality, which is a process that's still undergoing, you know, in how they work. And in DEFSECON, a lot of it is just around literally physically coming together. Now, of course, yeah, COVID-19 will change that and we're making it virtual to the extent we need at the moment entirely. But it's around physically meeting. You know, a lot of times, you know, what happens, and again, it's all learnings from DevOps, so we're not, we're replaying the playbook versus sort of reinventing it, is around just knowing there's a, a person on the other side and understanding what they're doing. So, you know, in DEFSECON, we bring developers and security people and, dev and operators are also in there to give talks that are all security related, but they come from both angles. So mm -hmm. suddenly you're a developer and you sit and you hear a security person talk about risk, you know, and talk about how do they manage it. And suddenly you're a security person and you sit there and you hear about, you know, agile and scrum processes. And so all of them are really a joint investment and it's a commitment for us to the community. And from a business perspective, we believe that the faster the world kind of reaches these conclusions, the faster the practices get formed, the better it is for our business because the, that's the thesis, you know, on which we built the, the company and, and its offerings. It's an interesting world we're in right now, that's for sure. And, you know, the change isn't just the developers, it's the organizations too. And there's a lot of organizations that are, you know, being impacted, you know, like airlines and just different sectors of business that are just severely being hit by just change, you know, downturn in, in economy, you know, from no one flying, et cetera. But in many cases, you see a lot of cuts in those businesses and cybersecurity to some degree or security taking a back seat. What is your perspective of security in this world now and how organizations need to approach it? Yeah, so I think security continues to be super important. Unfortunately, kind of history teaches us that, you know, at the time when there is a lot of vulnerability, attackers kick in. Uh, so they use this vulnerability. We're seeing, you know, all sorts of phishing scams right now that are related to COVID-19. We're definitely seeing, you know, we've seen in past crises, like in 2008, 2001, we've seen an increase in online attacker growth. So we don't know exactly what will happen here, but we can guess that attackers are only going to accelerate versus go down. Unfortunately, it also some people that are on the cusp also revert to sort of more criminal activities when the market doesn't give them a lot of great uh, sort of legitimate work to, uh, to perform. So it's very important that companies continue to invest in that security. You also, as a company, don't want to go from, from a financial crisis to a, to a crisis caused by a breach. You know, you want to do it. So it's hard. Balancing budgets are hard. You know, from SNCC's perspective, what we did is we actually try to help out by giving sneak usage for free. So we've actually made an offer of six months free of sneak usage to uh, uh, companies in the distressed industries and to certain sort of uh, small, medium businesses as well, sort of certain SMBs, trying to kind of help people. You know, at the moment, it's hard to get 
if you're in an airline, it's hard to pay anything. Like you're not really sure what's going to happen tomorrow. But the security people still want to kind of keep the company secure. These developers still want to do that. So we're sort of opening up. We have, you know, thanks to the last rounds, we have enough in the bank to be able to to withstand kind of this period and allow, you know, these parts of the community, our customers as well, to keep secure, kind of stay secure as they brave through these uh, really, really challenging times. Uh, we also issued this um, cheat sheet of sort of 10 best practices for secure development while working from home <laughs> nice. from uh, what we're doing and, and running a little webinar on that topic as well with the uh, Atlassian CISO and uh, a security lead from Envision. Just again, share practices about what should you change. You know, it's a lot of it is about developer empowerment. You know, like this is a time that you can't scrutinize. You can't slow people down. So yeah. how, do you, how do you change, you know, to sort of have people, uh, have the developers know what to do. It's around focusing on security hygiene and also some uh, specific security threats and opportunities like two-factor authentication and like zero trust network, this notion of like your, your home surrounding is not going to be as secure as your corporate surrounding. What can you do about it? And actually, this is a great time to start a bug bounty program because, you know, again, unfortunately, but still if you turn something, you know, turn kind of lemons into lemonade, there's more people at home with the right skills who might be interested in making a few bucks helping you find security flaws in your system. Yeah. So uh, it's a good time to do that. So, and we, we try to give back. I think people have to, if you ignore security right now, again, you're just going to wake up from one crisis to another. I like what you said there was security hygiene. <laughs> I don't really consider it as a hygiene. Like, you know, like you wash your hands. Wash your hands. You, you know, enable certain things on your home router because so many people are operating on Wi-Fi. I hear oh, the Wi-Fi is terrible in this area of the house, so I have to go to this area of the house, and you know, maybe their Wi-Fi is insecure, or they, you know, they got packet sniffing and all these things. Like I can only imagine. So I want to want to make sure you give me that link to that uh, those 10 best practices. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll link that up for sure. Let's take a left turn back to, I guess, the future of Sneak. It was about, I want to say last year sometime, it was last July, I think, you'd mentioned Peter McKay earlier as humbly giving up your role as CEO and what that process was. You mentioned, you know, people over your history too, and Peter played a key role in a lot of what you did too. So it wasn't just like you picked a random CEO and like, oh, there you go. This is a very interesting way of like leveraging all of your history and great people in your history. Can you share the story of of you and Peter and just, you know, maybe even pull in some of the stuff around the need to sort of eject yourself from the CEO role and give it to somebody that can help you lead the company direction you want to go and, and you allow, allow you to focus on the things you can do really well. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Peter and I go way back, you know, Peter was the CEO of Watchfire. So if I mentioned before sort of Sanctum Watchfire and IBM, Peter was the CEO of Watchfire when they acquired Sanctum. So we met for the first time there when we were in touch and doing a bunch of things together over the course of the next sort of five years. And then I've always kind of learned a lot from him and I've never been shy. So I would kind of go up to him and ask questions. And I consulted him when I considered going to tech sales for a while, as I mentioned before. So I've always kind of learned a lot from him. When I left IBM and I founded Blaze, Peter came on my board. Uh, so he, at that time, we probably got a little bit tighter to just sort of talk through problems. And Peter is, is a very accomplished uh, individual. He comes from a, a finance and then sales background and then sort of really like big CEO backgrounds. He's been the CEO of 
I think about five companies by now, you know, three exits. Uh, he was the GM Americas for VMware. Uh, so he ran VMware's kind of uh, America's business, which was, I think was like a three or $4 billion a year revenue wow. line. So it's definitely sort of a big business, but also ran Watchfire and ran kind of Series B companies. And he and I think nothing alike, you know, like we, you know, he comes at, we come at the same problem from massively different angles, but we share the same values. And over the course of the years, we've learned to see that. And it makes our conversations really, really valuable because when we talk about a problem, you know, I would raise a problem and I would think about, you know, different attributes of it, Peter is likely to think about that problem from a totally different angle. But if we both reach the same conclusion, then the likelihood of that conclusion to be to be right is pretty high. Yeah. And so I really kind of got exposed to that during Blaze, right, with him on my board, and it was really, really great conversations. Uh, and I had like Mike Weider, my co-founder at Blaze, was super smart and taught me a ton. And he and I had great conversations as well. We were just a little bit closer. Peter was like further removed in terms of, of how we thought. And so when I started Sneak, you know, Peter was always involved. At that point, it was a friend. We do some investments together where we benefit as well from the fact that you know we both think very differently. So again, if we both conclude it's a good company to invest in, it's more likely to be right. And I brought him on as, as an independent board member early on. And it was great that he could do it and it, he didn't have a lot of time, but because of our history, he took the leap of faith and because he was excited about the business and because of our you know familiarity, we could get a lot of value even when he didn't have enough time. And it was really, really great having him on the board. And he was already contributing to Snake's trajectory and already excited by it. Yeah. So when he ended his tenure at, at uh, Veeam, which was the company he was CEO, which I think he grew from like 400 million to about a billion dollars in revenue in like two and a half years. And when he ended his tenure there, you know, if I take, you know, go back to that, you know, strategic opportunity taking, I saw a window. At the time, if I switch from Peter to me, this is kind of at the beginning of 2019, but really like a few months after, so like, you know, April, May of 2019, I felt like Snick has been going through this massive growth spurt. You know, at the beginning of 2018, we were 23 people. At the beginning of 2019, we were 84 people. Uh, so it was like f- almost 4x the company, you know, during that period with 7x revenue. It went from like tech only to like, I have to figure out a lot of these uh, businesses. We did a fundraising kind of a round in that period at a substantial, like, you know, subsequently we did two more, but but still it was like a real valuation. A lot of money, yeah. And what I found was that all of my time, I have an amazing team, you know, I think like our team at Sneak is, I've never worked with such a capable team and I've never been the founder that held everything on his shoulders. Like, I think I was fortunate enough to bring like great people on board and they helped, you know, make the company a success and, and I, I would fill in different gaps. And still during that year, if I look at like, you know, April 2019 to the year before, the vast majority of my time was spent internally, was just scaling the business, you know, finding more good people to work this way, adjusting the processes, you know, helping the sales deals. And what I wasn't doing is what I think I'm like is my best competency, which is, you know, I wasn't being a visionary. I wasn't being out in the community to sort of speak and write. I wasn't, you know, engaging with customers enough. I literally was tracking how many customer calls I have every week. And I went from like my desirable, like several every week to like none, you know, sometimes (laughs) I would have three weeks when I would. uh, 
And so I, I was just stretched too thin and I couldn't let go of that because I needed that to happen. And in parallel, I saw this opportunity with Peter. So we started talking about this and my board was very supportive. They basically said, look, everything's going well. Like you don't have to do this. You know, you don't have to make any change. You know, it's, it's going really well. But we also see the appeal in Peter, right? So if you're both on board and you're excited by it, we'll roll with it. And so we, we talked about it, and then in July, we kind of announced it to the company and subsequently to the world, and then you officially joined it in kind of late August, beginning of September. And look, I think it's one of the best decisions I've made. First, because of Peter. So like, I just got the, the benefit of this amazing individual who came on board, you know, like it was very, very helpful when we continued to grow because the company went from 84 people to 250 people in that year. But it also is helping even now with sort of the crisis. Peter has, you know, having gone through sort of the, of the, the 2000 crisis and the 2008 crisis, it really helps to just work together. So he and I, in a much more sort of intense fashion, collaborate and sort of bring those two very different perspectives into the company, which I think makes our, our general decisions right. And it helps, and there's specific expertise he has around scaling our go-to-market, right? He came in and he, he made a comment at some point that like the R&D organization was far more mature than the go-to-market organization. And it, to an extent, it's natural because the company was growing so fast, but also to an extent, it's my lack of knowledge. Like I didn't know how to grow a go-to-market organization. So I'm a techie, I'm a product visionary, you know, I'm a community guy. And so... We got all of those. And then on my front, it helped me regain what I started slightly losing around the personal life because I was trying to do all of those and it was just too much, you know, both the sort of the CEO and still do the product visionary. And in practice, I wasn't doing the product yeah. and the strategy. And so it helped me basically get back to that, which I think is what, what Sneak needed from me and sort of needs from me most. And so, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you always have to sort of swallow a bit of an ego peel uh, when you do this. There's <laughs> always adjustments around finding the conversations that you can increasingly not be a part of, like not just not be the ones leading them, but not be in the conversation. And that's legit because it's the only way you make time. And what I had the luxury of, which isn't available to everybody, is the fact that I had this deep trust and kind of known relationship with Peter. And that continues on and I think like I would yeah. I would make the same decision in a hard bit. Even without that, I would encourage founders to just just assess at any time. And I think one of my maybe the key statement that stuck in my mind is like just because something is good doesn't mean it can't be better. So you don't have to be in a failure state to sort of make a change like the one I did. It can be in a success state because there is an even bigger success, an even better situation to be at. You can always improve. Very wise words, Guy. I'm glad you shared that story because I think you have a lot of people who have a hard time replacing themselves to some degree. And and luckily, you know, a CEO hunt can be very, very hard and very, very taxing on an organization. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're approaching a failure state, you know, not so much like failure as a CEO you, but if you're in a bad state and you need a new CEO to sort of move back in and find margin into your life, whether it's work life, whether it's, you know, whatever, having the history you've had with Peter was such a <laughs> such an awesome thing. And maybe it plays a role back into your helping to help earlier on in your career and having that mindset because Peter was there, available, trusted, capable, yep. already involved. You already had a lot of personal financial involvings in terms of investments and angel funding, et cetera. And so I'm glad you share that story because it really shows a perspective of what it takes to appreciate that transition from getting some of your margin back. It sounded like you were really stretched thin and what happens when you're stretched thin is you have no margin. When you have no margin, what happens? Mm -hmm. You have no yep. maneuverability. 
you sort of, you know, almost in a very near to a panic state potentially if, if it got too stretched. And I'm glad you shared that story though. So guy, thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, I'm sure we could talk further and longer, but man, you got some cool stuff happening. Sneak is doing amazing. 84 last year to 300 this year. You're growing. This is a perfect time for being security minded. And I'm so glad you shared your story today. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, happy to uh, to share. And I guess we've been talking about, you know, sharing the learnings and hoping, you know, people can, can learn from them and then uh, do better. Yeah. Thanks, guy. All right. I hope you enjoyed this show. One of the best ways our listeners can help out is by sharing this episode with a friend, giving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, or by sharing your thoughts in the comments. Head to changelog.com slash founders talk slash 71. This is episode 71. And if you haven't yet subscribed to our master feed, it's one fee with all of our podcasts, not just founders talk, but the changelog, JS party, go time. Everything we produce is in one single feed. Head to changelog.com slash master or search for Changelog Master in your podcast app and subscribe. You'll find it. And last but not least, thank you to Linode, Fastly, and Rollbar. They're our partners. They get it. And also to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.